Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In June, I talked to a cardiologist who had just sifted through data on New York's first wave of hospitalizations. What he found was so striking, I've asked him to come back and update us. His name is Dariush Mozafarian, and he's also the dean of the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy. And as he went through that data, he noticed that one risk factor seemed to be particularly risky, obesity. The slow-moving pandemic of obesity in America, he argued, had collided with a fast-moving pandemic, and it was a disaster. Over just 30 years, the United States and the world has seen an explosion of obesity, diabetes, and related conditions. And COVID-19 is much, much worse. Mozafarian says what has become clear as we near the end of 2020 and the data continues to pile up, it's that COVID would have taken much less of a toll if the country was metabolically healthier. When the CDC looked at the data, they found that among people who tested positive for COVID, about a third had cardiovascular disease and about a third had diabetes. They noted that hospitalizations were six times higher and deaths 12 times higher among those with reported underlying conditions compared with those with none reported. They found that if you are a 35-year-old person with um, diabetes or obesity or hypertension or similar condition, you have the same risk of hospitalization as a 75-year-old with none of those conditions. That that kind of 40 years of biologic aging from having these conditions is really striking. And, you know, any one of those conditions, diabetes, obesity, hypertension, about double the risk of being hospitalized. And so if you have two of them, that's four times the risk. And if you have three of them, that's eight times the risk, adjusting for age and, you know, education and and other other things. So really striking. And what I believe, you know, the, the science is now showing, what these things all have in common is the underlying biology of these diseases. They're diseases of unhealthy blood vessels called the endothelial cells, the cells that line the blood vessels, and of chronic low-grade inflammation. And COVID is a very interesting and dangerous virus because it infects not only the lungs, but it actually infects the blood vessels throughout the body. And that's what leads to many, many complications, Uh, kidney disease, strokes, heart inflammation that's being seen in young people, likely kind of the long hauler syndrome that we're just starting to learn about. And that combination of infecting the blood vessels or the endothelial cells and causing inflammation is really what makes this virus deadly. It's, it's why people come in with pretty normal looking lungs on CAT scan, but they have low oxygen levels, not because their lungs are full of infection, but because their blood vessels are being destroyed. The blood vessels that take the oxygen from the lung in, into the body as just one example. So, so it's, a, it's a striking virus from a biology perspective, but it also means from both a public health perspective and a clinical treatment perspective, we need to be paying attention to these things and addressing these things, and, and that hasn't really happened so far. But so if COVID gets into the blood vessels, why isn't that, I mean, everybody has blood vessels, why isn't that just as dangerous for a thin person as it is for a heavy person? Well, this is, of course, a trillion-dollar question, and we have to understand mm. you know, why it's particularly devastating. But from just first principles, diabetes, obesity, hypertension, all have in common, cardiovascular diseases, all have in common that the, one of the first signs of those conditions, even before you're formally diagnosed with diabetes or have a heart attack, and even when a person just starts to gain a little bit of extra weight, 
One of the earliest signs is that the blood vessel function decreases and they become unhealthy, they don't function well, and they don't deal well with stressors. That's what leads ultimately to hardening of the arteries. That's what leads to the high blood pressure. And that contributes to poor metabolic health and inflammation and diabetes. So I think it makes perfect sense that since COVID-19 really goes, it goes like, you know, like a bullet for the blood vessels when you get infected, um, that people who have healthy blood vessels and can handle and fight off the virus from their blood vessels do better than, than people who don't. When you look at um, data from all around the world, are other countries seeing obesity, uh, diabetes, cardiovascular disease as the same kinds of risks that we are? Absolutely. And, and the consistency is really striking. So this has been seen in China. This has been seen in the United Kingdom. This has been seen in Italy. This has been seen in many different cities across the United States, as well as in national data. Everywhere that's looked has seen the same thing. Um, the, the top risk factor um, after age for a poor outcome from COVID-19 is obesity. And the second one is typically diabetes or hypertension. Uh, and then the third is the other one. So those three conditions in particular, you know, lead the way. So let me ask you about that age thing, um, because one of the things the CDC has noted is that, uh, you know, older people are also the most likely to have underlying risks. So one thing they wrote is that for um, people under 40 with COVID, cardiovascular disease was very rare. But for those over 70, already half of the people already had cardiovascular disease. So I know like scientists are always trying to disentangle, you know, this one factor from this other factor. But is it that the people over 70 are over 70 or is it that people over 70 are so likely to have cardiovascular disease? Like what's the problem? Well, the the risks associated with diabetes, obesity and hypertension for poor outcomes from COVID are independent of age. So at any given age, if you have diabetes, you have a doubling of your okay. risk for a poor outcome, or if you have obesity or hypertension, you have a doubling of your risk. So that's independent of age. Gotcha. Okay. And you know, if you compare a 75-year-old with one or two or three of those conditions versus none, huge differences in risk. So it's definitely okay. not age alone. But on the other hand, you know, we're, we're defining diabetes as kind of you know, yes, no, if you meet an exact glucose cut point, right? Do you have it or do you not have it? We're defining hypertension as yes, no. Obesity is meeting an exact cut point where in reality, people are on a spectrum approaching diabetes, pre-diabetes, pre-hypertension, overweight. And I think the evidence supports that, you know, one of the reasons older people are at higher risk is that they're much closer to having those conditions, even if they're officially diagnosed as not having it. I think if you're a very, very healthy older person, really have no whiff of diabetes, you know, lean, exercise well, eat well, have normal blood pressure, you're at much, much lower risk than if you're on the way but don't yet have those conditions. So I think part of this idea of age as a risk factor is driven by these underlying conditions. And you know what hasn't been studied just because we don't have the data in these national large data sets is what about the impact of physical activity and nutrition? And we know that okay. physical activity is one of the most important things to lower inflammation and to have healthy blood vessels. And we know a good diet is one of the most important things to lower blood pressure and have healthy blood vessels. And so I believe if we had the data, we would find that poor diet and physical inactivity are just as big risk factors for uh, poor outcomes from COVID. Hmm. Well, let me kind of touch on something you said, which is that most people aren't um, on the ends of the spectrum. So 
Um, has there been any research into, okay, so somebody's not super thin, but they're not severely obese. As you get heavier, does the risk go up like incrementally? Because obviously like weight is not an on or an off. Like some people are 10 pounds heavier than other people and so on and so forth. Yes. And, and all of the science that's been reported so far is consistent with that. And so people who are overweight versus normal weight are at higher risk and people who are obese versus normal weight are at even higher okay. risk and people who are severely obese versus normal weight are okay. at even higher risk. And so there definitely has been you know, evidence that there's a spectrum for obesity. And similarly for diabetes, you know, half of American adults, half have prediabetes or, or diabetes. And while I haven't seen any you know, great analyses looking at prediabetes as a risk factor, um, there was a really nice study in China that looked at you know, if you did have diabetes and you were admitted to the hospital, how severe was your diabetes? How well controlled was it? And what they found was that if you got admitted with poorly controlled diabetes, one in nine people died who were admitted with poorly controlled diabetes. If you were admitted with well-controlled diabetes, one in a hundred died. So, you know, 1% Whoa, death rate. Uh, that's so different. Yes. A 1% versus an 11% death rate, right? So, oh, so wow. striking. And so, you know, really suggests that all of these things are a spectrum. And for me, one of the things that drives me crazy and keeps me up at night is while the world has been appropriately spending, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars to invest in so many things like vaccine development, social yeah. distancing, hand washing, mask wearing, why in the heck haven't all the governments been saying, and at the same time, you know, let's the best you can be active. Let's try to improve diets in our country specifically, but in other countries as well. Let's try to do other things that, you know, we're not sure, but could have even a, a modest impact. And a modest impact when you have a global pandemic, you know, can really make a big positive difference. You know, I heard a uh, doctor, a pediatrician who heads up a chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics, and she said she saw really notable weight gain in her young patients who've been learning remotely for the past several months. And it feels like even though we have been seeing, yes, tremendously long lines at food pantries, which might indicate hunger, which does for sure indicate hunger, my understanding from the research is that when people become more food insecure, that often goes hand in hand with issues of obesity um, rather than, you know, extreme thinness. Well, this is the, you know, terrible, violent problem of food insecurity is it leads to both hunger and chronic diet-related diseases like obesity and diabetes. People who are food insecure don't have the same ability and access to eat, you know, nutritious, healthy food um, regularly. Right. And so not only are they hungry and worried about where their next meal will come from, but when food is available, it tends to be the least expensive, most um, diet-inducing food out there. And so this, is, this has been known for many years that in the summers when especially low-income children who tend to be black or Hispanic or white but are overwhelmingly more you know, racial minorities go home for the summer and don't get school lunch, actually gain weight and then come back to school and get healthier food in, in school again. Now with all the schools closed, as you said, this has been happening across the whole nation in real time. For most kids, you know, school, school lunch is actually pretty decent now uh, after the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act was passed in 2010. So this is a national disaster that we're going to have a generation of kids who at least have had six months of worse food. We have to be thinking about this slow pandemic 
that's underlying the fast pandemic and addressing it in real time. What would you hope happens? Because this is a big ask. I mean, my understanding is that there's really no country that has turned their obesity rate around. You can correct me on that, you know, uh, but where, you know, things have gone up where the obesity rate has gone up and they've been like, we're turning this around and they have. Yeah, well, so that's right. That's an inconvenient truth that obesity is expanding in every country worldwide. But at the same time, the rates are very, very different among different countries. So some countries are doing much, much better. And independently of obesity, if we just have healthier diets and sleep a little more and exercise a little more, even for any weight, we'll have lower rates of diabetes or better control diabetes and lower blood pressure. So it's not just about weight, it's about overall metabolic health. So I I think there's uh, six things that I think a new administration could tackle. I think number one, first and foremost, is all this has to be coordinated, right? There's food and nutrition is fragmented across almost every department and agency in the federal government, over $150 billion a year invested in food and nutrition policies and programs, but uncoordinated. So I think we need a new office of a national director of food and nutrition or a food czar or food and nutrition czar who will actually help coordinate and sit you know, at the cabinet level, sit on the National Security Council, advise the president for this massive opportunity and prevent this kind of fragmented approach we have now. I think second, you know, we need more science. We've learned a lot, but you know, imagine if we had the ability for the federal government to have jumped in in March and started studying these questions and said, you know, what nutrients mm-hmm. are needed to help prevent this virus from infecting endothelial cells or causing inflammation? Who's really at risk and how can we address it quickly through food or lifestyle? So, you know, we we and many business leaders and other advocacy organizations have talked about a, the need for a federal moonshot for nutrition research. That's the second thing. I, I think a third thing is food as medicine, integrating food and nutrition into healthcare. So Medicare, Medicaid, private payers will pay for healthier nutrition, whether it's medically tailored meals or produce prescription programs or other things. And, and that's actually happening, starting to happen at the state level and some and some private payers. But Medicare and Medicaid could take this on and, and really advance it. So um, I said there's several things, but I think those are three big things that, that could really help. And I guess just the fourth that I'll add is, you know, business has to be a part of the solution. They can't be only a, a problem. And when I say business, I mean from agriculture, restaurants, retail, to food manufacturers. So I think those are, you know, four things I, I would say that the next administration could take on and pretty rapidly make a positive difference. I'm sure if I had talked to you uh, like a year ago before COVID-19 was anything most people had heard about, um, that you would have said you were concerned about nutrition and weight in this country. Do you think what's happened over the last year, I just wonder how it's changed you? Has it made you more concerned? What's happened in the last year in your view? Because some things haven't changed. Yeah. No, it's a great question. Well, I I think that, you know, actually, maybe even more than COVID-19, the Black Lives Matter movement and the recognition by many people of the deep, deep structural racism, uh, you know, in our country and around the world has has maybe even had a bigger impact on me than COVID-19. You know, something we we always knew and, you know, always, always recognized, but just really, I think for many Americans, this, you know, is is one of the biggest civil rights awakenings of, of our lifetimes. And so to me, the combination of kind of the focus on racial equity and COVID-19 
has really brought home and made me more passionate and determined to try to make a difference through, you know, a healthier food system because it's all intersected and, you know, Mm -hmm. fragmented supply chains, um, you know, kids out of school, unable to have kids get sufficient schooling, parents out of work and not having jobs, unhealthy eating, higher rates of, you know, poor metabolic health, more exposure to COVID-19. It's a vicious negative cycle. And so if we want to have a resilient population you know, this isn't the first global pandemic. This is the sixth. If you kind of go through all of them, this is just the worst one in the last 10 years, right? There's Zika and, and SARS and others, Ebola. If we want to have a resilient population um, and we want to have a equitable population where there's not these dramatic racial and other inequities, you know, food is, is, is part of the solution. So I think it's, you know, kind of doubled down on my commitment to trying to get, get, get this information out there and, and have positive change. Dariush Mozafarin is a cardiologist. He's the dean of the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts University. Dariush, thanks for coming back. Uh, a real pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. We've got lots more on our website about nutrition, obesity, and the pandemic both articles from journalists and also papers from scientific journals, if that's more your speed. That's all at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer, Elizabeth Ross, producer, Mark Solinger, and associate producer, Sarah Leeson. We also had production help from Caitlin Falds. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.